0: Welcome to episode number 139 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. and in today's episode, we're talking about Canadian building codes with the Kilo-Lima community, and we're doing that with Kelsey Longmore, Senior Building Code Consultant with Celerity Engineering and co-founder of the Kilo-Lima Code Community based out of Regina, Saskatchewan. Kelsey, I want to give you a big welcome and a big thank you for coming on to the podcast today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: I'm really excited to talk with Kelsey. I'm going to let her give some of her background when we get into sort of the interview part. Uh, but the Kilo Lima community is a community focused on Canadian building and fire code education. It's at code.com That's K-I-L-O-L-I-M-A-C-O-D-E.com. I'm sure Kelsey will tell us where the name came from when we get into the interview. I was made aware of this Group, I guess this community, probably about a year ago when some of the members in the Dust Safety Academy recommended it. I thought it was a really great idea for those that are working with building codes and fire codes every day to give them a place where they can come and get that education, come and get that understanding, come and ask questions. And then it was also really important for our mission with combustible dust safety because building code and fire code enforcement is sort of a piece of the dust safety puzzle, if you will. And, and to be honest, a piece that is not my expertise and my background. So I was absolutely thrilled when I saw this community pop up and really wanted Kelsey on the podcast to talk about it. So we're going to do that this episode. We're going to talk about Kelsey's background. What is the Kilo Lima code community? Probably ask Kelsey where the where the heck she came up with that name from. Um, <laughs> how do building and fire codes work? What role do they play in industrial settings? Who are the users and some of the challenges they come up with? And we'll talk a bit about integrating standards such as NFPA and that. But really, this is like a primer for building fire codes and this community that Kelsey's working on before we get into, okay, well, what's that mean, NFPA 652, and where's that referenced on which line in which province, and, and da-da-da. We'll have further podcast episodes about that in the future, but today is like the background, give Chris an idea what how building codes work a bit and how they get integrated and what some of the challenges are. Um, we'll close out by talking about what's uh, coming up next for Kelsey and, and the Kilo Lima community. So, Kelsey, that's a bit of a, a further introduction than I maybe planned for, but in terms of your background, can you tell us how you came about to be in this field, in this area, and just what brought you where you're at today?
1: Yeah, thank you so much. That was a great, um, thoughtful introduction. I appreciate it. Uh, so, I my background, um, I got into engineering, um, probably like most 17-year-olds when they start university, not really knowing what it was, but I was good at math and science. So, my background is actually in environmental environmental systems engineering. And I always thought I would end up in some kind of tree-hugging, saving the planet role. But after after university, I got on with the municipality, the city of Virginia in a roadways roadways role. So doing some asset management and then some kind of sidewalk and roadways maintenance um, planning. And then after, I think I'd probably been with those positions about five years and they weren't quite challenging. And there was an opening in our building department. And honestly, I probably had not really ever looked at <laughs> the building code prior to this. Um, but I got um, I got on with them. And then within about 10 months after starting, kind of finding out there was building and fire codes, I'd passed my exams and was kind of the lead and only plan reviewer for fire protection and life safety with, with the city of Virginia so it was it was a really steep learning curve but it was it was good and I loved it. And I've been with um, the building code since. So, just over five years, um, I've been working with the code, both as the regulator and then now as a consultant. So, that's kind of how I came to be with the building code.
0: I love it. So, we're going to talk about kind of different pieces of the puzzle here. So, that's sort of your background what is the Kilo Lima code? Maybe let's, let's just get it out of the way. What's the name mean? Where'd that come from? And then tell us about the community and and why you started putting it together.
1: Um, So Kilo Lima is um, my initials in the NATO phonetic alphabet. So the building code is very, very confusing. Mostly like I always say, the building code isn't rocket science. It is just very poorly written and organized. So to me, you know, spending my days with the building code, it, it makes sense and, you know, I can look at plans or, you know, what type of occupancy building is and kind of know, like have my mind map of where things in the building code are. But if you're not familiar with it, it's just very, it's very confusing and you can't make sense of it. So, you know, the phonetic alphabet is designed to ensure that um, letters and numbers are easily Pronounced and understandable, despite language differences or poor connections. So that's what we're really trying to achieve: is is um, kind of demystify that building code, make it you know quick communication. It's verbally precise and just ensure that these critical messages can be understood correctly. Because you know, at the end of the day, it's it's life safety. And to me, it's just way too complicated. It should be simplified. So. That's where the name comes from. And the community itself is really, as I mentioned, I started as an HG in Saskatchewan and I didn't have very many resources available to me when learning the building code. When I started, I didn't even realize that there was these code consulting industries and pretty big industries in like Vancouver area and toronto area like most of the projects i looked at and worked on like there wasn't even anyone specifically looking at the building code so in terms of learning the code it was it was really challenging there wasn't a lot of resources or really um community to talk with code items about and then when i started with celerity um and i actually we moved out to bc for just over a year i was exposed to this whole industry with all these different co-consulting groups and, you know, the build, even the building officials associations and these bigger centers are so much better resource that they can, you know, provide more information. And there's just so much good information out there. It's just really hard to find. And, and so what we're trying to do is kind of make a central place that people can find those resources easily because it really shouldn't be so much of a struggle for people. And, yeah it's it's people's lives that we're trying to protect so we're just really trying to make it easier so that the overall level of compliance can just be just be raised because there is you know in smaller jurisdictions where the building officials and fire officials if they don't have the resources to even know what's required um, then it doesn't get enforced. And then a lot of times there's just very unsafe buildings. People just don't know what they don't know. So that's kind of our goal is just to really get everyone up to speed on just the basics to start with, because there is, even though, you know, it's law and you need to meet the building and fire code, I have seen so much non-compliance across, you know, across the country. So that's kind of our goal.
0: Makes a lot of sense to me, and I, 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 was hoping you'd bring up the NATO phonetic alphabet because that's what I read. One of the first things I read when I went to your site. Um, why, uh, you know, Kilo Lima? It's got a question mark, so I, I assume they're asking what the heck the name means. <laughs> the NATO phonetic alphabet was designed to ensure the letters and numbers could easily be pronounced and understood despite language differences, poor connection. And that's like exactly, and it, and it sort of makes. It it makes sense, and I think about our world of NFPA regulations and standards and guidelines. It's the same thing, and you you said it in a really good way. Hard to map the whole thing out, and that just really struck. I put a big asterisk on my page here. It's like because you talk to those people. Some people have the map. They've worked with it so much that they can tell you what line item and what section number on on a given year, inversion <laughs> number uh, that one that thing falls into. I feel like those folks are so good at it that they almost forget what it's like to stare at a thousand page document and, and just blink three times and think, you know, the what? There's like, if you have the map in your head, you have it, it's hard to associate with those that don't. And that's really a hard and long process to start to build that map in your head of how everything interconnects and, and all that. I, I assume that's some of the challenges that you've seen building this up yourself, even from your level of understanding.
1: Exactly. There's the people and, you know, these are, we're the ones who specialize in consulting um when we have these mental maps and know what's all applicable and and it is it's just such a shame that it's just such you know like if like there's a there's a lot of companies but if you look at kind of overall how big the construction industry there's very you know there's very few co-consulting experts and you know I work on now as a consultant I work on a lot of projects in Vancouver and area because these are you know they're bigger projects there's a lot more money you know hiring a code consultant is just pretty standard out there whereas when you walk outside of um, like Vancouver and Toronto it's it's not a part of most um, construction projects process to involve a code consultant so you know the architects are left with you know they their focus is on the design yes they need to know the building code but they're, they're not spending their days in it. And so, you know, I've I've seen, you know, architects who are really great with it and who really care about meeting minimum requirements, but I've also seen kind of the dark and dirty side where, you know, if, if it's the products in a smaller jurisdiction where they know that, you know, maybe they only have one building official and they don't really have you know, the knowledge of these complex buildings, because they see maybe one or two a year and they know that certain things aren't going to be enforced. Like they just will kind of try to skirt around them. And so I've seen, I've seen that side too. And it's, it's just very unfortunate and yeah, the building code, it just, I, and I think because like I started as the person teaching myself, I just have so much understanding for how much of a struggle it is where you know, some of these co-consulting companies, that's been just like their focus since the start and they've had people to teach them. Like I didn't have um, tons of support when I started. So I'm very, very sympathetic to those who need to use the building code, but haven't, you know, had someone guiding them from the start of their journey. Like this is, this is how it's mapped and letting them know, like, do not start at three one at the beginning of part three, because it's, it's really just a schmuzzle of random information and you're just going to like exhaust yourself trying to learn that. And so it's, um, yeah, I don't even really know what the question we started with was because I'm just <laughs> rambling now, but.
0: That's no problem at all. It's, it's helpful to hear the perspectives. Um, and we've sort of had those echoed before I'm thinking back to an interview we did with, uh, with Justin Beal in episode 125 challenges in regulating combustible dust, processing industries in california and you mentioned the same sort of thing that that one of the challenges with with the hj side and the regulator side and the inspector side is the different types of those groups i guess so if you have a really small community then you know having the resources they probably have too much work and too diverse work to be really specialized in every in, say combustible dust as a very specific aspect or even you know they'd have dozens of those very specific aspects that they come across and how do you become an expert in all of that training turnover. You talked about a lot of aspects around these smaller jurisdictions. Now he's not in a small jurisdiction himself. I think he's in Fresno, um, which would be quite large, but you know, there is those challenges uh, for different HAs and for different regulators. I think that the Kilo-Lima community, which we'll we'll talk about, hopefully is starting to provide some of those inroads for those. Uh, Before we get into like the community, just like bare bones for those of us that are, you know, researchers, explosion protection folks, equipment people that just don't handle, don't deal with, you know, building codes and fire codes very often. Um, can you just give us like an overview, like what is a what is a building code or the building code um, and fire code, and sort of how do they? what role do they play in industrial and commercial settings? Like just the the real Coles Notes versions, because I'm sure it can get quite complicated if you try to explain the whole thing out.
1: Sure. So the National Resource Council publishes five national model codes. So the building code, fire code, plumbing code, energy code, and farm building code. So that's um, a national model code and it's not actually enforced until certain provinces either Adopt it with amendments or kind of come up with their own code modeled after that So it's kind of one of the first challenges with building and fire codes is that it varies from province to province. So um, there's national codes uh, provinces adopt them and then the Municipalities or the regulatory authorities that then need to um, enforce these codes. So um, like the codes are developed, they're committee-based process from different members across Canada and in the industry. You know, anyone can submit code changes at the committee's review and um, yada yada. So it's kind of this long, this long process um, to make these monocodes codes that then are adopted and enforced. So the the building code and the fire code specifically are sister documents, so they kind of Um, They'll reference each other and they should be working together. So the building code is applied when the building is kind of designed and constructed. And whenever there's alterations or renovations or change in occupancy um, to the building, you look at the building code for the rules and then the fire code. Um, Regulates more kind of the operational side. So once, you know, a building's built and occupancy is given, then you look at the fire code for requirements. And so both, both the building code and the fire code are occupancy based. So meaning different occupancies have a whole different um, set of rules associated with them. And so there is um, what's called assembly and there's four subcategories there where people gather. There's care, treatment and detention, um, residential, business and personal services, mercantile, which is your retail, commercial, and then industrial. And there's actually three subcategories to industrial. So, high hazard, um, medium hazard, and low hazard industrial. And what a lot of people don't realize with industrial spaces is that, you know, high hazard industrial may be obvious, but the difference between low and medium hazard, um, there's different code requirements associated with it. And people tend to just, you know, see a warehouse space or an industrial space and kind of think they can put whatever in it. But a lot of times if the building's just been designed for low hazard, it might not even be able to accommodate a different, you know, a medium hazard use or high hazard use in the building with really significant upgrades. So yeah, and as I mentioned, the building code and fire code work together. So I like theoretically, just when you're designing a building, you should look at the building code, but there is some fire code requirements that do need to be considered during the design, but the, the documents don't really talk to each other properly, and so it happens that a lot of times these like really significant fire code requirements, like maybe the requirement for a standpipe in a distillery or explosion venting for something, aren't considered when the building is built. Um, and then you know the owner finds out when a fire official becomes involved after occupancy that things are required. So. That's how the two documents kind of work together um for buildings, and yeah, it's a part of kind of a model code that then changes depending on which province you're in and actually Vancouver is a city in Canada that has its own building code, even though it's a city itself, so it gets kind of confusing and it's really hard for specialists like yourself, as I'm sure as you know that you know working in these different jurisdictions when there is so many variations across even the country so
0: Yes, I would. Uh, yes, is the, is the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I kind of by, by way of summary then, we have the National Resource Council, at least in Canada, and this is going to be different in other regions. It may have some similarities, may have, be vastly different. Um, but really here we're, we're talking more about the Canadian building and fire codes. So the National Resource Council that has these national model codes for building, fire, energy, farming, and plumbing And we're kind of talking about building a fire here, but maybe some of the similar things can apply in the other national codes. But those are are national model codes. Those are adopted by different jurisdictions, maybe, you know, like directly, like taking the whole national model code and and putting a new cover on it, Um, maybe by reference or maybe by adopting pieces of it and, and, you know, integrating into their own processes, policies and procedures. And you you mentioned something I want to kind of come back on, so when it gets sort of enacted, so when you're maybe doing design or when there's changes in occupancy. Um, So I'm going to leave that for a second, kind of how it gets rolled in. We'll come back to that. But the interesting thing you said that there's these different categorizations depending on what the occupancy is. And for industrial, you have high hazard, medium hazard, and low hazard. And depending on what category you fit under, the sections or parts of that code then that are going to apply to you are are different. Does that sound fair and saying? Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it does. Different different rules apply. It's not as clear as like looking at a different section <laughs> because the building like that'd
0: be too easy. Yeah,
1: no, <laughs> it's it's not easy because requirements are tucked throughout the code. But yeah, there's different rules that would apply to high hazard, medium hazard, and low hazard, and you actually kind of classify an overall building based on these occupancies and what that classification does is it determines the construction requirements so it'll determine whether you can use combustible construction or you have to be non-combustible and it'll determine the requirement for sprinklers and floor ratings so you know if something was designed as even a medium hazard industrial and you want to go in with a high hazard you may be looking at like big big significant upgrades to a building Um, and high hazard actually is there's restrictions on which buildings it can be in, like it can't be in a building that there's assembly. So any kind of restaurant or dance studio or anything like that. And so it gets, it gets pretty tricky with industrial um, kind of switching out spaces and kind of, yeah, changing, changing uses, even though I was an outsider who's not familiar with the code, it might just seem something very similar and you wouldn't need to consider the code. It could have really huge impacts.
0: The purpose of this, interview is to talk about this high level information and talk about the kilo like the, I want to get into the challenges that people are having. We keep talking about them throughout, but I have like a ton of questions about building code stuff <laughs> like that are popping in my head about specific things. Um you know what maybe I'll maybe we'll hold off on those. because um, I have questions around how how things are classified into high, medium and low. You mentioned like classification changing. Um, also when does it get enacted in terms of when like when are those spot checks? You mentioned design, but sometimes don't get caught in design. And the reason I mentioned those, and I think we're gonna roll those into a, maybe a future podcast episode we can get young because it sounds like a whole topic kind on of its own. But those are like the 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 fulcrum points where I think we can make a difference with combustible dust. It's like, okay, at what point do they need to do a change in uh, requests? And I've seen these request forms go out and, you know, boxes not checked for say fire and explosion hazard when there's combustible dust there. And I'm thinking if there's some education we can do at that stopgap point, then, then we might be able to, to um, improve some combustible dust efficiency. But that's like, I, th- I think, a bigger part. So maybe we'll put that into a part two of this, <laughs> this interview that we do at a different time. I want to cycle back because that's probably a, a good overview for folks. Um, and we talked about the role they play in industrial and commercial settings. Like, where who are the users of the Canadian building fire codes then? And I want to get into what kind of challenges they have. And this is sort of a follow-up from that conversation I've had with Justin Beal, and, and even some other folks that are are AHAs as well. So, you know, who who's looking at the Canadian building and fire codes in general?
1: Everybody should be <laughs> who works with buildings. Um, but yeah, it's not that simple. So um, like your building designers, your architects, your engineers, um, anyone kind of designing the building. Like I would say for the majority of what I look at is heavy on the architecture the architects and kind of the building designers because they're the ones who, because it is occupancy based, they're the ones who know how the space is being used and should know the different rules for these requirements. And then um, theoretically they should be coordinating with um the other disciplines, So they should be, you know, letting the electrical designers know where fire separations are or where exits are, or if a fire alarm is required and letting mechanical know, like mechanical needs to know where fire separations are required so that um, they know if they need fire or smoke dampers. Um, and and so really it, sh- it should be heavy on the arch- architects and then um, coordinating with the electrical, mechanical, structural for certain aspects so that those disciplines can incorporate the requirements into their into their designs. And then the other huge, huge user, obviously, is the um, authorities having jurisdiction. So the building, as we call them in Saskatchewan building officials, I think in Alberta, their safety code officers or different names, places, and then kind of the fire, the fire official, the fire inspector side. So the fire, like the fire official and fire inspectors, they're heavy in the fire code, but for so much of the fire code, it actually references back to the building code. So they should have a really big, like a really heavy understanding in the building code. But um, from my experience, that's not, that's not really where they get their training and they're not required to kind of have their exams on it. So there's really this huge gap kind of enforcement on that side, because once buildings, you know, are you know the building design and constructions. What a couple of years, and then the life of the building is now under the fire code and under the jurisdiction of the fire officials. So it's um, it's crazy to me that there isn't more kind of requirements for building code knowledge um, and understanding on on that side.
0: Yeah. So I want to wrap some of this up into like a in, into an understanding, mostly in my head, so I can f- figure out how to do to, it. Uh, Attack this in the future so we have we have architects engineers designers electrical mechanical structure and i'm picturing that's like greenfield to building erection kind of level like the design and building of that building and then the hjs the fire officials safety code officials fire marshals would they would it be safe to say they come in after that or do they do like a pre-inspection or and you kind of mentioned it moving from, from building to fire code. I just want to like really pull that out from my own understanding.
1: Yeah, for sure. So during kind of like during a building permit process, so, you know, theoretically a, a set of drawings is submitted to the city at building permit and everything should be, should be right. So in my experience that's where the building officials come in and they review the drawings um, for building code compliance and then once permits are granted and construction happens, then there's building inspections throughout construction of building to ensure that it's built as design and so in terms of fire official and fire marshal engagement and kind of input during the whole design process, it really varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction if there are engaged in it or not like some and especially in big jurisdictions you get kind of like the different silos of different groups where maybe the building department and fire department don't really talk so the the building department may review a building inspect it then hand it over to occupancy and then the then now it's under the lens of the fire marshal who then maybe you know knows something from the fire code or you know sees sees an issue from the building code maybe the the building official didn't pick up and, but now there's occupancy given and now it's just a huge headache for owners and the fire department to deal with things. Cause typically, you know, after occupancy is given, then, you know, the developers and contractors kind of wash their hands of it and it's everything's um, up to the owner and legally really even like legally, the owner is ultimately responsible for code, code compliance. So um, I've seen a lot of things go awry. There as well so that's kind of when the different groups are involved in the process but again it depends on jurisdictions whether the fire department is more heavily involved during and providing their input during the design side which in my opinion they should be as well because they're really the experts in you know the fire department access and what they want to see there and um, where exactly they want their standpipe connections so it really varies between jurisdictions for that aspect
0: yeah, this is really helpful to me, Kelsey. From the outside, sort of looking in, and I know it's, one of the challenges probably that is different in every location. But even getting one standard idea of how it kind of moves along allows us to understand when the, what the variations are. So you have like a building permit submitted, um, it would be reviewed and then approved. Then there would be inspections during the construction, and then you said once is granted, and is that is is that um, like once the building's up and running or because I've seen, I ran into that where occupancy was granted and then the challenges with combustible dust started. And it's, it's like nobody's really looking after it at that stage from an HJ perspective. <laughs> I don't know if that was a lot of questions, but like the sum, the short question is just occupancy being given. What does that mean? Do you have like a definition for that?
1: Um, and yeah, so occupancy that depends on um, different jurisdictions as well. But really, like in general, it's when. When a building's done and people can either move in if it's residential or tenants can start using it. So in most jurisdictions, once occupancy is granted, then kind of like the building permit file is closed um, and and the building permit's done. Now it's like an operational, an operational building. And yeah, like like things are a lot harder to enforce and really get done once occupancy is granted. because. As I said, you know, a lot of the design side and the contractors, they've they're done their job. And um, and there, there's this big perception, too, that if, you know, something gets through the city or a building official doesn't catch it, that, you know, the city's, like, everything's fine if op- occupancy is given. But as I said, the the building owner is ultimately responsible. And being a, a code enforcer, like we were we're people too and things get missed. So even if occupancy is granted, like there is still legal obligations for um, the owner to um, have the the building meet code, but um, exactly like combustible dust. I can say I like I'd been reviewing drawings for years and it never, never was on my mind um, because I'd never had any, education on it. Um, and I mean, in a city, you're not going to have as much of these hazards as you are in kind of more rural municipalities. But, um, you know, the one I had was, it was a brewery and there was some grain cracking and mulling or something. I don't know. I was like, well, is there it's just caused combustible dust. And they're like, well, I don't know. You tell me. I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not the expert in this. Like I know the building code, but there's like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of reference standards. Like it's literally impossible for municipalities to be experts in everything. And then what ended up happening is, I don't know, I'm sure I'm gonna say this all wrong, but they did a dust hazard analysis or something, something, something. But it it started the conversation, which I don't think had ever really been asked in my jurisdiction, anyways, is you know is there these hazards and when it's not asked or addressed during the building permit stage like I said once occupancy is given and people are in a space operating it is really really challenging for the fire department to then kind of rectify the situation because then you know it's it's a business that's operating at the the fire official goals and you know shuts them down until they figure it out well then there's going to be complaints to the mayor and you're hurting local businesses. And and it's just, it becomes very, it can get very political. So when things are left till after that kind of occupancy stage and not addressed early on, it's it's really, really challenging.
0: Yeah. You said a lot of things that just made me, I was shaking my head just yes the whole time. <laughs> Start the conversation. And when I said like trying to find those touch points, that's exactly what I mean. Not that like somebody needs to know how to, to, you know, spec an explosion mentor. Or even do a dust hazard now, but like to ask question. Oh, is there combustible dust involved here? And then they look at you and go, "Well, I don't know." You tell me. And then you look at them and go, well, "I don't know." You tell me. <laughs> That's if 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 I can instigate that discussion more frequently at different parts of this process and every other process that that goes on, um, we'll end up with safer facilities at the end of the day. So I was like nodding my head yes when you said to start the conversation, not necessarily knowing all the well, the 140, 138 podcast episodes before today that we've done <laughs> and and understanding all of that, but just to start that conversation. Um, one, I know this is turning into sort of a, a lesson for Chris on how <laughs> building codes work, but this is tremendously helpful. The only piece to close out that gap is, so I understand all the way through to When is when is it like when they make a change to the facility that it should go back to, like is there a permit for a building change that then... That would go back for reevaluation to the building codes, and and fire codes, or like what's I know I know sometimes changes get made to buildings without this type of request, but I figure out how does how is it supposed to come back in for that one last touch point? Although that that would happen every time there's a change, is is that how it works, or you got to put a change request in for your building permit or something like that?
1: So build like a building permit would be required anytime there's any alteration. So if, you know, someone's moving into new facility, regardless if they're changing major occupancy, if they're even putting in like interior partition walls, you know, that needs a permit. So anytime the building's like altered or renovated, it comes back to the building code and like building code requirements are applicable to the building. So the building's not um, isn't applied retroactively. So if you're, you know, if you're operating in a space and a new building code comes in, you don't all of a sudden have to upgrade to that to the new building code. But if you're to do any new works, all new works need to meet current building code. And it's, it's our code's actually really awful in that we don't have any really rules other than in Vancouver, but any rules for existing buildings and how to, you know, because it's not as simple as you know, this specific tiny part meets new requirements because there could be other like really huge life safety aspects that should be addressed. So anyway, so altered, renovated, any of that comes to needs, needs a building permitting to go through the whole process again. And the other thing, which, you know, in some of these smaller jurisdictions that people don't really consider is that even if you aren't physically altering the space, if you're changing occupancies, you need to get go through the building permit process because the, the code of the day now needs to be applied for that new occupancy and see if there's any compliance issues. So really like a whole new building code review has to happen to the current code when you're changing major Um, major occupancies, so those ones I outlined was assembly you know residential and then the different industrial so if a a space was designed as a low hazard industrial space you know someone might be moving in not wanting to they don't want to change a wall they their plan in their mind is just to move in and start operating but they need to go through a permit and get a whole new kind of building code review done for the new occupancy because it could you know there could Maybe now they require two exits and they only had one or maybe their travel distances don't meet or maybe the building now needs to be sprinklered or the roof needs a rating or like there's so many different things that could come into play that people just really have no idea when they move into space. They just see kind of a space and are like, oh, that's great. We can just move in and start operating, but it could have huge, huge implications. I'm actually working on putting together a very basic course right now um, for kind of commercial realtors and prospective tenants on you know what to consider before leasing this space like just knowing those questions to ask like not teaching people to be building code experts but just knowing to ask the right questions because yeah as a as a when I worked for the city of Regina just the amount of like heartache and heartbreak I saw of like you know people renting these spaces and then not actually being able to operate in them, it's it just it happens all the time, and it's you know businesses can fold because of it, and it's it's uh, it happens everywhere.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We did a couple podcast episodes a few back on some case studies. I walked through. I sort of talked about one of these cases. I'm trying to find the episode number. I don't see it here, but it was it was a it was a grain facility that, uh, that was. Episode one oh nine, the true cost of ignoring your cup and bustle dust challenges, and there were several, like maybe seven fires and and a, an explosion or two, or something along those lines in in sort of a four year period. And I I was reading the the fire marshal reports on the, the fires, and that was one of the challenges they kept bringing up that that it was already running, and they put kind of requests in for. Basically, try to shut it down at, at one point, um, which the whole point of the episode was talking about the, the challenge for the company of doing that. But it's also a challenge to the building code officials and the the regulators and the HAs then to get that through. So I, I don't remember the specifics, but I remember talking about those challenges. Uh, I did want to, I want to circle back like to code users. I got a whole running list here uh, of the challenges you've already mentioned, like multiple jurisdiction, every jurisdiction, um, you know, adopting in it different way potentially the the model codes and maybe even adding some of their own stuff training and resources in different locations the difference between the building and the fire code and who sort of has expertise in each and whether or not the people that are experts in fire code you know have expertise in building code and vice versa where to go to ask questions if you just don't know the answer or something you know how do you go figure it out uh, i think the answer has the Kilo lima code community is the great place and there's a big button that says ask us a question right on the, the home page there who has control at each stage. So once you move into actual occupancy and running, then who's kind of controlling after that. Um, And knowing what you don't know. I mean, I pulled those other six or seven different challenges. Any other like big ticket things that you haven't mentioned or even ones that you have mentioned that I'm missing that, that list of the sort of challenges from users of using building codes.
1: Um, I think it's just the overall complexity of it. Like, and I mentioned this a few times is that it's just, very, in my opinion, poorly, poorly written. And it's, you know, we're so deep into it that you can't really, you can't really make these major changes. So yeah, just kind of knowing where to find things when you need them is just a huge, a huge challenge for people. So yeah, like one of the courses I initially did was part three fundamentals. And so I kind of try to break it down for people that you know you're you don't need to be an expert but just kind of getting starting that map um of where things in the building code are so you know when you need them but that's it's, it's one of the huge challenges is just that like it's it's this huge document that's overly complicated just because of how it's written
0: yeah and so you mentioned a couple times like a few courses in that maybe just run through like what are the different elements of people are going to find if they go to kilolimacode.com um, my hope is that if you have questions about Canadian building code or even you know North American building code that this be a resource for folks to go to what kind of things are they going to find there you mentioned a few courses but what else and maybe what other courses are there
1: yeah, so we have um we run a weekly blog, and this goes back to um, a, f- a friend of mine, Jim Burns, a fire inspector at the city of Regina. We had talked about starting a blog um, for a while, and then it kind of just escalated because I realized it's really time consuming to write a blog. So um, we've gone and recruited, I think we have like 14 or so. Some have left, but we call them villagers because it takes a village to run a blog. And so we have different blog writers from across the country and the industry. So we have some code consultants um, We have some, you know, a fire inspector. We have um, architect, a few engineers um, who write a weekly blog post that vary from Um, Maybe some really technical code info, but maybe some general, more thought-provoking blogs, you know, kind of addressing those things you don't know um, and conversation starters. So we have a really awesome group of people who, um, and we put out a weekly blog. Um, We also have, we have a community Q&A, which has not, taken off whatsoever, whatsoever. I was like, this is the best thing for code users, um, is kind of just a ask a question. So when questions do come in, we put them out to the community, we put them on our site, and then we'll put them in kind of our weekly email. And so kind of to start those conversations on specific things. And so kind of like a forum, but more of a curated one. So it's not, you know, things getting lost or these big long chains. I mean, we're trying to track them Associate them back to code sections. So um, if people you know want to know what we have on our site for a specific code article, um, they can look it up in the the blogs associated with it or the questions that the communities ask associated with it will come up. But it's a it's a work in progress. And then we have our code school. So I've put together a building code fundamentals course on part three. And then we have two other courses on there um, right now by um, other instructors. So the goal is to host um, also other professionals um, and other kind of industry-specific knowledge individual courses to to start these conversations on things that are issues. So you know our our focus for our courses right now is really the the architects and the um, building and fire officials because you don't know what you don't know. And there is, you know, there's webinars and there's stuff out there that's very technical information, but I guess in terms of combustible dust, like a building official doesn't need to know, you know, like you said, how to design explosion ventings. They just need to know which questions to ask and what to look out for. And so that's really the goal of kind of the different courses we're bringing on is that these are the things that so many people are missing, um, and so let's start that conversation. So that's kind of the goal of our cold school is to bring together kind of these expert niche knowledge and make them more available. Cause to, you know, to put together an online course and have somewhere to host it, like it's it's a lot of work. And a lot of people aren't gonna do it if they just have, you know, maybe one thing that they wanna teach. Like one of the recent courses I took through the anyways for Vancouver the certified professional course one of the sessions was on um it was this he was an elevator guy so he knew the electrical code for elevators the building code the elevator code and it was like a 1 hour Um, session he put on about elevators and he was so energetic and enthusiastic that like I've never been so excited to learn about elevators but it taught me you know it's it it taught us like what you need to look for from these you know pulling together these different requirements and like that's the kind of stuff I want should be available to anyone like any building official should be able to take that one hour course so that they know the basics of what what questions to ask. Because if the enforcement doesn't know what questions to ask, then it's very likely that these things just are never going to happen and aren't going to be done properly.
0: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. So we have the weekly blog with, written by The Village, <laughs> and I like that. Um, and I mean, there's a, a ton of great material there. The community Q&A, um, which is really good. Like I said, if you have a question, you go on there and ask it. And then, you know, you have the team already to, to attack that question. Uh, and then the Code School with the different kind of courses. So there are uh, when I was flipping through the blog post, there were quite a few on things that I thought were relevant to you know people in this that we listen to this podcast. Like passive fire protection systems don't get the love they deserve. That's uh, Jim Burns, who's a pretty active Dust Safety Academy member as well. Um, a great source of knowledge in there. Protection of chemical storage or roadmap NFP subsection three point two point seven. Um, so lots of stuff combustible dust, tiny fuel, big threat. Hey, that one sounds interesting. <laughs> so there's lots of good material there. And I, I guess anything else coming down the pipe for you or for Kilo Lima that you think might be worth for the, the audience to know about at this point in time or anything that you're excited about?
1: I'm excited about a lot, a lot of things. <laughs> the net, like, re- what we really need to do is focus on letting people know we exist because people can't really get engaged with a community Q&A if they don't even know it's a thing. So that's kind of our next step is really reaching out to all the users and letting them know who we are and that we exist. But also one thing that, you know, after that is is a really, something I really want to work on is kind of a an outward facing on the site database that really pulls together the, cause there's the black and white information of the building code, but there's also the gray. So like the interpretations on specific code articles that are available from, you know, different associations across the country or, you know, certain municipalities advisories, what they think about certain requirements. So really pulling together the, the gray matter, I guess, for, um, tied to code articles because as a code user, you know, if you look, if you read something and it could be interpreted different ways, then you start your Google search trying to find uh, what other cities think or if there's been um, building code rulings on it to say a certain way. And it's like, I just think about all the people doing this. And how time consuming it is. And it just seems like such a waste of effort to me that if we had one central location that maybe, you know, someone has their own spreadsheet of of, you know, kind of links saved for certain things, we can put those in and just really starting to grow this kind of community database of that gray information. So that if you're working in a jurisdiction and you know, something's a bit gray, you could, you could look at this database and you know, see if that jurisdiction has a has a specific you know, opinion on it and have that be readily available. Um, that's kind of my next big dream for Kilo Lima. So just trying to figure out how to make that happen.
0: I love it. Canadian building code, help desk,
1: mm-hmm, self-serve exactly. or full-serve.
0: Um, I mean, we've tried to do something similar dust safety, combustible dust help desk, and it's there. Um, there's multiple touch points and normally it's people just emailing me, me which floods my inbox with uh, crazy questions from flower dust explode in a freezer to does fingerprinting dust explode to uh my high school student has a question about the ocean national emphasis program <laughs> so there's lots of that's that's just like the <laughs> last two weeks off the top of my head so there's lots of stuff that comes into the help desk that uh that we're, we're trying to come up with that centralized storage and that centralized um you know full service approach to that so it'll be interesting to see how we can kind of grow together in those challenges moving forward. I don't wanna take any more of your time today, Kelsey, but that was extremely interesting on my perspective from learning both the fire code and the building code, um, how they work together, what some of the challenges are, who the users are, and also then going through your background and understanding about the Lima community, your vision for that, what's there today. I guess the only thing I can say to to kind of close out is thank you for coming on the podcast and I uh, I hope for the chance to get you back on in the future because I have uh, at least at least one or two other episodes on some specific topics to, to delve into, but I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that in the future as well.
1: Yeah, thank you so, so much for having me. Um, this is great. Yeah, podcasts are always a little, little nervous going into them, but you made it very easy to talk and talk and talk. So thank you so much.
0: Excellent. I appreciate it. I'm sure we'll be talking soon. Thanks,
1: Kelsey. Thanks.
0: So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and Kelsey Longmore, and we've been talking about Canadian building codes and the Kilo Lima community. Um, We talked through some of Kelsey's background on how she got into Canadian building codes, how she really got into having to learn the whole thing herself through her job experiences, through how she was working with and as an AHJ, and, and just some of the challenges that come up with trying to learn that whole process. From, you know, from not knowing anything to, to knowing a lot about building and fire codes and some of the challenges that came up there. We talked a bit about how the Canadian Building Code is structured, things like the national model codes for, and we'll see if I can get these right, fire, building, plumbing, farming, and energy, and how those get adopted in different jurisdictions and maybe in different ways, which is one of the, the first challenges that we come across with Building fire codes is that they're different depending on what location you're in. You're also different depending on what time you're building. You're building in So they change over time as well. So this makes a you know a vast network of complex interactions and documents that the, the building code officials need to search through. I through induction, I guess I really tried to I drew this nice big map of how this works on this piece of paper while Kelsey was talking, so that I can use it for myself. We have the building permit is submitted for a new building. We have review against the building fire codes um, and communication with the different stakeholders. So things like architects, mechanical, structural, electrical, designers, all really need to be in on that process and understand how the building code works and the fire code works and how those elements fit together. Um, we have inspections during the construction of the process. We have running and occupancy of the building. Then there should be checkbacks every time there's alterations or changing in occupancy um, that are required Then sort of checkbacks into that whole system. And then throw that whole thing, you have this sort of other side stream that would be the owners responsible for meeting the fire and building codes for that building and, and also potentially inspections by government officials, by fire marshals to make sure that that responsibility is being met, which is a whole other piece. So I think when we hear about dust hazard analysis being brought up or combustible dust safety in general or any different aspects of it, it comes through one of these touch points or can come through one of these touch points if it's coming through that AHJ. Now, there's a whole bunch of other HJs that may also bring this up as well, but I'm trying to map out what the different touch points are. And that's sort of a, a bit more of my understanding on this AHJ side in terms of government officials were, were uh, developed through this. So in that, we talked about a lot of challenges around who has control of each stage, um, multiple jurisdictions, training and resources, where do you go to ask for help, just the complexity and the inner relationship between the different documents, and then Calling out to other documents. I mean, we didn't even really talk about FBA, but they have, you know, 652 and other, you know, a handful of other documents that relate to combustible dust. Those are all then integrated and interesting and sometimes hard to um, interpret ways to, to fill the fire codes as well, or, or maybe even not in other cases. Um, that's a bigger topic on its own, but there's all these challenges. And then that's really what spurred Kaylee to come up with this Kilo Lima Code Community. And again, that's K I L O L I M A C O D E. AkiloLimaCode.com, where it's like a community, and network, kind of like what we build with Dust Safety Academy or even Dust Safety Science in general, where people can go if they need to answer questions about combustible dust, or in this case, building and fire codes. And I really look forward to, to um, seeing that grow and develop over time and actually using that as a, as a linchpin where our community can better understand how the, the building codes work so we can be integrated with that as well. Just closing out, I guess, if you have questions about Canadian building codes or fire codes, I'd certainly encourage you to reach out to Kelsey. We'll have a way to do that in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 139 for this episode. That's the numbers 139. Um, go check out code.com. I'd encourage you, if you're interested in contributing, if you're interested in asking a question, or if you're interested in the training and education there, to go get a hold of Kelsey. She's a, she's a wealth and knowledge in this space. I'm sure she'd be happy to hear from you and happy to help as well. Um, With that, I just want to say, as always, thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I appreciate everything you're doing in industries handling combustible dust, making them safer every day around the world with the different job roles that you're doing, the things that you're doing in those positions.